today, as Kyla mentioned, uh, we are finishing Hebrews. Uh, if you are here today for the first day, uh, I'm glad you're here today. I'm glad you get to catch uh, very the, the last part of Hebrews. But on Sunday, January 18th, uh, we started walking through uh, the book of Hebrews. And I asked a question back then five months ago, out of all of the books in the Bible, why are we doing this one? Uh, out of all 66 books, why on earth did we pick or land on Hebrews? And uh, I shared the, the why of that question uh, five months ago, and I said this. The why is, well, to know Jesus rightly. Uh, to know Jesus rightly so that our lives would reflect the reality and the grandeur of who Jesus is, uh, what Jesus has done, and what Jesus is doing. Uh, my heart, as we began this journey, uh, was that we would uh, know Jesus rightly and that in our lives, it would begin to reflect uh, this is who Jesus is. And so Hebrews, for me, has not been so much about information. Uh, clearly, in 13 chapters, there has been a lot said. Uh, there's been a lot of things that we've been challenged with uh, to learn and to know. Uh, but it's not so much a book about just having information or knowledge about Jesus. It's about what we know of Jesus actually bringing uh, meaningful and lasting transformation uh, to our lives, to our walk with God both now and forever. Um, author, pastor, theologian uh, Stephen Gurr said it like this, um, and I read this five months ago, Hebrews transforms our understanding of Christ, our Christology, meaning our theology of Jesus, from abstract theology to intimate relationship. So again, the heart of Hebrews has been not knowing something, but knowing Jesus is making a lasting difference, uh, transformation in our lives. But one of the things that um, I shared along the way is one of the things that hinders or gets in the way or undoes transformation in our lives uh, are things that we are often believing about God that are just not true. Uh, and if we believe things about God that are not true, it's just going to show up in how we live. And so if you're believing maybe that God doesn't even exist, well, that's going to show up in how you live your life. Or if you believe things about God that God is just kind of this cosmic bookkeeper, uh, just tracking everything that you do that's wrong and kind of keeping score, well, that's going to dramatically impact how you relate with God, uh, how you even understand God. And what undoes transformation in our life often is things that we are believing that are just not true. And so I challenged myself, but also all of us, five months ago when we began this journey, might there be some things that you need to unlearn? Might there be some things that you just are going to need to be willing to unlearn so that you can learn rightly, this is who God is. This is what God is like. This is who God's son Jesus is. This is what Jesus is like, and this is what Jesus has done. And the beauty of unlearning and learning rightly who God is, who Jesus is, is Jesus gets bigger and bigger and bigger as we get older and older and older. Uh, C.S. Lewis, um, uh, one of my favorite authors, uh, wrote a great series of children's novels, children's books, um, called The Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, and one of the main characters in the early stories of Chronicles of Narnia is this little girl, Lucy, uh, who meets Aslan, and Aslan is the, is the Christ figure. Uh, and Lucy has been out of uh, Narnia for some time now, but when she comes back into Narnia and she's greeted by Aslan, and this is the conversation that takes place. Welcome, child, he said. Aslan, said Lucy, you're bigger. Well, that is because you are older, little one, answered he. Well, not because you are. I am not, 
But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. And I, I remember reading that, I was like, I love that. Aslan, the Christ figure, Jesus, he is not changing. He is not getting bigger as it were. But as we see rightly, this is who he is. He is getting bigger and bigger in our everyday lives. And so as we rightly understand who he is, our lives will begin to rightly reflect how amazing this God is and what God has done in our lives. So as we finish uh, Hebrews today, um, I wanted to ask a question, uh, and I would chalk this up as a pretty big question. And the question would just be this. What is the one thing that seems to drive who you are? What is the, the one thing? Uh, what is the one thing that seems to drive who you are, ultimately thus how you live, what you do? So one thing. What is the one thing that seems to right now, not the one thing that you wish would drive your life, but what is the one thing that seems right now to be driving who you are, ultimately impacting, influencing how you live your life? I, I'm going to guess for some people, it's your past. Your one thing is your past, specifically maybe something that happened in your past, something specifically that maybe was hard or hurtful or disappointing. Something that happened in your past has become your one thing, and it's ultimately driving and shaping and forming who you are today, ultimately how you are living today. Maybe for some, it's not so much your past, but it's your future. It's your one thing is what you hope will happen tomorrow. And it's kind of this idea, if, if this would just happen, or if I could get this, accomplish this, achieve this, if I could achieve this, this one thing, whatever that one thing might be, maybe it's a job, maybe it's a money thing, maybe it's a relational thing. If in the future I could just have this one thing, then everything else in my life would just fall into place. And so your one thing is a future thing that you're hoping one day will happen, uh, which will ultimately impact. For some of you, it's not a past thing or a future thing. It's just a very present thing. Maybe there's just something that is happening in your life that could just best be summed up as a hurt or a pain or an addiction or disappointment, but something going on right now in your life that seems to be driving everything about you and ultimately just shaping the life that you're living. Now, after spending nearly five months with the author of Hebrews, uh, we, we get to the end of Hebrews, and in the closing verses, he says this, uh, verse 22, I urge you, Okay, I implore, I'm begging, I, I urge you, dear brothers and sisters, to pay attention to what I've written in this brief exhortation. I love how he refers to Hebrews as just a, it's been a quick little text, a brief, a brief letter. But he, he says, I urge you, I implore you, pay attention to what has been said, to what has been shared, to what has been written. Now, I don't know about you, but I've never sent an email or I've never written a letter that begged the person that I was writing it to, I'm urging you, what I have just written here, I am imploring, begging, urging you to pay attention to what I have said. I, I've never done that, but as I thought about this one verse in verse 22, I wrote it down in my journal like this. This man is absolutely convinced that what he's written about Jesus will profoundly reshape our today with God, our tomorrow with God, our eternity with God. 
In other words, his one thing drove him to exhort people towards that one thing. He was so convinced of his one thing that as he concludes this letter, I'm urging you, please pay attention to what has been shared, to what has been written, to what has been said. Uh, years ago, uh, I uh, came across a great book uh, written by John Piper uh, that says, Do Not Waste Your Life. Uh, the title alone was just worth it. But in that book, um, he says this, The people that make a durable difference in the world are not the people who have mastered many things, but who have been mastered by one great thing, one great all-embracing thing, and they have been set on fire by it. And honestly, I remember reading that years and years ago, and I was so convicted. I was like, I don't even know what my one thing is. What is the one thing that, because I had something, I just couldn't identify it. What is the one thing that was mastering my life, that I was giving my time, my thoughts, my affection, my energy, my effort, giving myself to? And I, I remember reading the book and, and coming across that chapter specifically, the people that make a durable difference in the world are not people who have mastered a lot of things, but who have been mastered by one great thing, all-embracing thing, and they've just been set on fire by it. Now, the author of Hebrews, what's his one thing that is convinced that could be, should be our one thing? I just wrote it down simply like this, that Jesus is greater than everything. His one thing that he was convinced that drove everything that he wrote, everything that he shared, everything that he calls us, is Jesus is greater than everything. And if your one thing is knowing, seeing, believing, and living in light of this truth that Jesus indeed is truly greater than everything, then no matter how good things are going in your life, no matter if you got the girl, you got the guy, you got the relationship, you got the house, you got the job, you've got the position, you've got the applause, no matter if everything is just going super swell, well, Jesus is still greater than that. And no matter if things are really bad, and the storm is just so tangible, you can feel it. No matter how painful the pain is in your life, or no matter how disappointing or tiring or troublesome the season that you might be in, Jesus, he's greater than, than that. His one thing transforms him. And what he wants us to see as we conclude Hebrews is that knowing and seeing and believing that Jesus, in fact, is greater than everything is a, a one thing that would be worth being mastered by. Now, the reality is all of us are mastered by something. So I just wanted to ask, what is the one thing that you're currently being mastered by? And then we have to wrestle with the, the next question, is that really worth being mastered by that? Is it worth being mastered by anger or pain or anxiety or frustration or the hope that one day you'll get something that you think might make everything better? What is your one thing? And I'm excited just as we're going to walk through and just share with you um, a few things from Hebrews chapter 13. It's almost as if the author of Hebrews, he ends this letter and he leaves us with a few things 
that I would just put under the category of never forget that these things ultimately help us to remember what our one thing is. One thing being Jesus, he's greater than everything. So I'm going to share with you three things in particular just from Hebrews chapter 13. Uh, The first thing would be this. Remember, don't go backwards. Keep walking where Jesus is. Don't go backwards. Don't go backwards in life, but keep walking where Jesus is. Not where you want him to be, not where you think he should be, but keep walking where Jesus is. Hebrews chapter 13, uh, a few verses, starting at verse 9, says this. So do not be attracted by strange new ideas. Your strength comes from God's grace, not from rules about food which don't help. Those who follow them uh, don't help those who follow them. We have an altar from uh, which the priest in the tabernacle have no right to eat. Under the old system, the high priest brought the blood of the animals into the holy place as a sacrifice for sin, and the bodies of these animals were burned outside the camp. So he's helping them to remember there was an old system. There was an old way of doing things. But because Jesus has done what Jesus has done, he's ushered in a new way. So also Jesus suffered and died outside the city gates to make his people holy by means of his own blood. So let us go out to him outside the camp and bear the disgrace that he bore. Now, obviously, there's a lot of things happening in these few verses, but the message that the people would be tempted with, that we could be tempted with, is simply follow this new idea. Follow this, this, this thing. And if you do this, you're going to find what you're looking for. You're going to find the strength or the power uh, that you need to get through whatever it is you're trying to get through. But the author of Hebrews, he has a completely different message. Don't go backwards. Don't go back to religion. Don't go back to a list of, of rules uh, that if you follow those rules, you, you might get something. Jesus came to rescue, to set us free from being religious people, to be people who are driven by, if I do this, if I do this, if I do this, I get something from God. Jesus said, no, I came so you could have a relationship where you could walk, experience the love that God has for you every single day. And I love how it it says in in Hebrews, your strength, where does it come from? It comes from God's grace. Everything you need for life, everything that will happen in your life, everything that we need for the strength that we need to go through whatever we might go, it, it comes from God's grace. This is a really challenging message of don't go backwards because we're often prone to be people who go back to what's most familiar, uh, what's most often convenient, often what's most comfortable. And I was really wrestling with this this week of why are we often so prone to going back to religion, rules that regulate how one comes to God and how one stays with God. What is it about religion? What is it about a list of rules that we just... We drift easily, often, quickly that way. Now, obviously, you could answer that question in many ways, but for me personally, how, why I drift back that way is control. Religion gives you a sense of control. It gives you a false sense of control, but a con- sense of control nonetheless that if I just, I can control this whole dynamic going on in my life. 
if I can do this and I can do this and it's going to equal, God's surely going to take care of me or God's surely going to bless me. And we are generally speaking a people love control. We love to feel like we're in control. Tully and uh, Chavinjan wrote a great book called One Way Love. And he said this, most of the time, conditionality makes our lives easier and less confusing. If we can simply find the right set of conditions to meet, and then we meet them, our happiness is secured. It gives us something to count on. The problem comes, as it always does, when things fall apart, when we can't meet our end of the bargain. For every if you do, there's an if you don't. The underlying message of religion is always the same. Accomplishment precedes acceptance. Achievement precedes approval. The sad reality of religion is it just keeps us on this hamster wheel going circling and circling and circling, leaving people exhausted, leaving people tired, leaving people filled with guilt and shame and condemnation for what we could not do. But this is the beauty of what Jesus has done. He came to set us free. He came to invite us into a relationship with him. And the way that we grow, the way that we are transformed is not by what we do, like a set of rules, a religion, a philosophy, our piety, our morality. Did you catch in Hebrews 13, 12? Jesus suffered and then he died outside the city gates. To do what? To make his people holy. To make anyone who would have a relationship with him grow. To be more and more like him. To grow in being kind and caring and loving and compassionate and generous. Verse 12, Jesus suffered and died outside the city gates to make his people holy. So the author's trying to tell them, don't go backwards. Don't go back to what once shackled you, religion. There is no new idea. There is no new thought that would be better than the one thing that Jesus came to accomplish in our life, that he is greater than everything. But the message is not only don't go backwards, it's, it's what? Go to where Jesus is. It says in verse 13, so let us go out to him. So, so where is he? Like this isn't like the, the Waldo, where's Waldo? Like Jesus is somehow hiding and like every, every day it's like, well, get the map out. I have no idea where he is, but I'm assuming he's wearing his costume and I just kind of hopefully find in my day where Jesus is. This, this question of where is Jesus is not meant to like cause us to think that he's somehow playing hide and seek or he's really difficult to find. Uh, I, I don't expect you to remember, but months and months ago when we talked about Hebrews uh, chapter 4, it answers the question of where Jesus is right now, where Jesus is today. So then, since we have a great high priest, that's Jesus, who has entered heaven, Jesus, the Son of God. Where is he? He's entered heaven. Let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours understands our weakness, for he faced all the same testings we do, yet he didn't sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive mercy, and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. What we need most is not going to be found in anything other than Jesus. And where is Jesus? Well, Jesus is in heaven with God the Father. And the, the beautiful message of going to where Jesus is, that 
every day, you and I have the opportunity to practice the presence of God. No matter where you are, no matter what you're doing, as we're not going backwards, but we're walking with where Jesus is, we get to practice the very presence of God. It says, enter the throne room of God's, God's grace, God's mercy, with what? With great, great boldness. So what transforms every day is every day we get to practice his presence. But it, if I'm running around trying to figure out well, where Jesus is, and if I do this, maybe Jesus will show up in my life, I'll miss it. And every day generally is going to be filled with a lot of frustration and despair. But the message from Hebrews, the author of Hebrews is, don't go backwards. Please don't go backwards. Walk with where Jesus is. Uh, a second thing I, I think he would want us to hear is remember, this is not your home, so live heavenward. This is not your home, live heavenward. Hebrews uh, 13 verse 14 says this, for this world is not our permanent home, we are looking forward to a home yet to come. And just so you're clear on home, it's not like your physical address. This life, your life, this is not all that there is. But yet we often live and think and believe and act and react as if this is all that there is. And the author of Hebrews would want me to know, would want you to know, this is not it. This is not your home. God has something so much superior, so much greater than what we're not experiencing now, but he has for us. Here's some questions uh, that I was thinking about. Of, have you ever, do you ever feel like a longing or a hunger for something greater than what you're currently experiencing? Okay, all of us have, right? That you, you just want something more meaningful, more purposeful than what you're, you're currently experiencing, whatever that experience might be. Have you ever just even felt like sadness or frustration over, or anger over the way things currently are? But yet there's just something in your, in your mind, in your heart that says, well, that's the way it is. That's, nothing can be done about that. But yet you find yourself angry over the way something is. Or have you ever felt like, gosh, I, I'm content, like my wife still likes me, my husband still likes me, my kids still want to hang out with me, I've got a good job, I've got a pretty good place to live, everything seems pretty bright and secure. Like you'd say, well, I'm, I'm content, but yet there's still something within you that says, but something feels like it's missing. And so these, these questions, these range of emotions that we can have, why do we have those range of emotions? Well, the only way I can explain that would just be, well, because this is not our home. We were not created to live in this broken, fallen, sinful, evil, dark world. You were created by God to know God, to have a relationship with God, but the moment man decided to say, God, we don't want to do what you want to do, and they rebelled, sin came into the world and wrecked and ruined everything. But God who loves you says, I don't want you to be where you are, but I need to create a way for you to come to where I am. One of my favorite verses in the New Testament is 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. Christ, Jesus Christ, suffered for our sins once for all time, he never sinned, but he died for sinners to bring you safely home to God. Why did Jesus come? 
Well, because God loves you. And you couldn't work your way. You couldn't be religious enough. You couldn't be moral or pious enough. And God didn't want this to be your home. He wants your home with him. And so Jesus came. And those who say, Jesus, I trust, believe that you are who you said you are, the son of God, that you paid my sins, the penalty for my sins, Jesus is what brings us, is who brings us safely home to God. Now, if this is not our home and if Jesus came to bring us home to God, then why do we often live our lives as if this is our home? Like, I realize that some of you are like, I know that, Michael. I've heard you say that. I've read that. I've heard that. I know that this is not all that there is. But yet we often live our lives as if it is. What is it about us that we know something that this is not all that there is, but yet we set up shop like it is? We invest our time, our energy, our effort, we, we chase. Why do we try to set up shop here when we know it's not our home? Again, I'm asking this question to me. And so the only answer that I could come up with me, and it might not be yours, but I have a feeling it might resonate of why do I know that this isn't my home, but yet I often act like it is, is loss of vision. How quickly I can lose my sight of God in favor of hoping to get the applause of man, to get the affection of man, to get a possession or a prize or an accolade. When I'm doing those things, when I'm chasing after those things, when I'm desiring all of those things, somewhere along the way, I just lost my vision of God. Uh, In a great book called Welcome to the Story, Stephen Nichols said this, we think by clinging to and bringing uh, on with, uh, and hanging on with tooth and nail to our lives and to our agendas, we gain our lives. There's just something in us that if we try to hang on to And fight for it, we're going to gain our lives. We think by loving ourselves, by putting our self-interest and our agendas at the center, we are doing the best possible thing we can do for ourselves. And we are entirely wrong. We so need to develop a vision for God, surrounded as we are by monuments to man. There are so many monuments that are constructed going up in man, and we see that, and we're like, gosh, I want that. I want what they have. They, they seem to have it all, and I don't have it all, and I want that. When we lose our vision for God, we will lose our vision for our true home, our true calling. But the author of Hebrews wants me, wants you to remember, this is not your home, so live heaven word. What inspires me about the people that we've met in Hebrews along the way is that regardless of what happened to them or regardless of what didn't happen to them, they were so confident. What fueled their faith was the assurance that this is not my home. So no matter how bad bad gets, no matter how good good gets, this is not it. God has something more, something better for us. Uh, C.S. Lewis in uh, Mere Christianity uh, said it so wisely. This life, or uh, he who has God And everything has no more than he who has God alone. Just want you to catch that. He who has God and everything, whatever we think everything is, has no more than he who has God alone. Because the world will invite you 
to build your life here, to go after everything. But the message of scripture time and time again is if you have God, you already have everything. And I just wanted to be one who would invite you today not to build your life, your home here, not to look for your security, your happiness, your joy, your contentment here. Because it's fading, it won't last. But God says, I have a home that I'm preparing for you. Jesus came to secure that home, to bring you safely there. A third thing, and we'll finish with this. Remember, worship is both felt and heard. Worship is both something we, is felt, not just by us, by others, is felt and it's heard. Hebrews 15 and 16. Therefore, let us offer through Jesus a continual sacrifice of praise to God, proclaiming our allegiance to his name. And don't forget to do good and to share with those in need. These are the sacrifices that please God. Now, I know that when we often, you even hear the word worship, the very first thing that you think about or tend to think about is the songs that we sing. But the Bible makes clear that our worship of God, it's got to be felt and it absolutely has to be heard. Now, I'm going to guess many of us would agree, it's easy to hear worship in here. Like, it's easy to come here on a Sunday, and we've got an incredible team of men and women who engage our hearts and minds in worship through song, and I'm not, and that's pleasing to God, okay? Don't, that's pleasing to God. But I think worship, we forget that it doesn't just stay here. What the worship that God wants to hear is where you are the rest of the day, where you are tomorrow, where you are the next day. It's been said that our, our, our mouth gives voice to what's in our heart. So we can come here and we can sing our six songs. But what God is desirous, the worship that is pleasing to him is, well, what words, what what. How is, uh, what words are coming out of your mouth giving voice to your heart tomorrow when you're at work? When, when things are not going as you would want them to go or, I don't know, sitting in traffic or whatever it might be, the worship that God wants from us is not just when we gather and sing some songs here. What words are coming out of our hearts in the places that we often live and dwell? In our homes, uh, in our workplace, in our neighborhood. Uh, and I wanted you to catch the key word here is continual. Continual means it just doesn't stop. It's ongoing. It's never ceasing. So worship doesn't end at 1220 today. Hopefully what happened in our few minutes here encourages you to say, let's continue worshiping when I'm at lunch. Let's continue worshiping when I'm back at home. Let's continue worshiping when you'll go back to work or to school on Tuesday continually means every day, every moment, every situation, every person, every conversation is an opportunity to express back to God gratitude for who he is, for what he's done. And as I've already said, worship is not just heard, it's got to be felt. So here's a pretty important question as we close. Who's feeling your worship right now? Who is feeling your worship? Because worship, it's got to be felt. So if you're a husband, does your wife feel your worship? If you're a wife, does your husband feel your worship? I want to be clear what I'm asking here. 
every time that you are like God to somebody else, every time you are caring or compassionate or generous or gracious or forgiving or loving or any characteristic that is true of God, when we are like that to our husband, our wife, our kids, our neighbor, our coworkers, our boyfriend, our girlfriend, our friends, when we are like God has been to us, to others, that is feeling worship. So who feels your worship? Who feels right now your worship of God in the way that, gosh, you just care for them? Every time you're compassionate, that's worship to God. Someone felt that compassion. Every time you're caring or generous or whatever it might be, that's worship that is absolutely pleasing to God. Uh, Louis Giglio wrote a very simple short book on worship called The Air I Breathe, and he said this, God knows how inclined we are to say one thing and do another. That's why the true test of worship isn't so much what we say, but how we live. Words mean most when they are amplified in every area of our lives. So who feels it today? Does my wife feel my worship in the way that I love and serve and care the way that I speak? Do my kids feel my worship in the way that I model for them? Hey, this is what God as Father is like. He's open. He's available. Not giving the kids the Heisman saying, not now. I'm, I'm too busy. I've got too much going on. Who is feeling your worship today? Hebrews for me has been um, really challenging because uh, I've realized along the way of how much I still have to unlearn, but it's been really freeing and really inspiring that God is helping me to see, Michael, this is who Jesus is. Don't go backwards, Michael. Don't go back to what you were most familiar with growing up, that performance-driven faith. Don't go backwards, Michael. Keep following, keep walking where Jesus is. Hebrews for me, especially as we finish, has been challenging. Michael, do not build a home here. Do not build your life here. Allow God to use your life, but don't build your life here because, Michael, he's got something so much better, so much more powerful and meaningful than this. And it's been challenging, encouraging, and inspiring as we consider everything that's been said, everything that's been done in, in Hebrews is, at the end of the day, it should lead us to be a people who cannot stop thanking God for who he is. And our thank, our gratitude towards God shows up in what we say, no matter where we are. And our gratitude shows up to God, our worship of God shows up in just how we treat people.